Hi, and welcome to Figure Speech, a program from WRBH, where every week you can meet local poets and writers from the New Orleans community and listen to them share their work. This episode, we welcome on poet Laura Mullen. Laura Mullen is the author of eight books and the McElveen Professor of English at LSU. Recognition for her poetry includes Ironwood Stanford Prize, a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, and a Rona Jaffe Award. Her work has been widely anthologized, and she is the librettist for Nathan Davis's A Sound Uttered, A Silence Crossed for Choir and Percussion, which was commissioned by the La Jolla Symphony and Chorus. Recent poems have appeared in The Nation, Jubilee, 1111, and Lena Turner. She was the 2017-2018 Errands Poet at Tulane and also affiliate faculty at Stetson University's MFA of the Americas for 2018. Her translation of Veronique Patolo's Hero is forthcoming from Black Square. She was also the debut reader for this program, and we are very happy to have her back. Hi. Hello, New Orleans. This is Laura Mullen. I'm so happy to have been invited to be part of the Figures of Speech crew. Today, I'm a poet and a professor and a friend of um, David's and very, very, uh, really happy to be here on the radio sharing some poetry with you as part of this program. I'm going to start by reading from a book by Khadijah Queen. The book is called I'm So Fine, A List of Famous Men and What I Had On. I was lucky enough to hear Queen herself read from this book, and I recommend that if you can get that chance, you take it. The book came out in 2017. It's got an epigraph from Prince. Damn you, you're so fine. I'll just start at the very starting with the first one and read you a few Just so you get the flavor of this magnificent book, a couple of my students were talking about it. I just had the chance to hear some students. They were talking about the book with people they admire, and one of them was saying it's a book about womanhood. It's a a book in fragments, but it's a book that you can really relate to. It's a book about things that have happened to all of us, and it's a book about things that we have happened to us, and then, oh, We discount them or try to forget them or maybe we feel kind of funny about them and we don't talk about them. And Queen has done us the great favor of sharing these experiences with us. So here's the first page of I'm So Fine, A List of Famous Men and What I Had On. I met Marcus Chong on the 105 bus, method acting. I was going home in a flowered dress after work. I worked at Fat Burger. I was 18, and I think he was twice that. I had my uniform in my backpack with my statistics homework. And Woman Warrior, I recognized him and said, I liked Panther. This was way before The Matrix. He asked for my number. We talked on the phone. He came to visit me on his bike since he didn't live far from my job and ordered a veggie burger. I had a lemonade on my 15-minute break in my black fat burger outfit and ugly food service shoes. He asked me on a date. I said, yes. He called with the plan. I said, I thought we were going somewhere, but he wanted to make me dinner at his house. I said, no, I don't know you well enough to go to your house. He got angry. The end. 
I met Cuba Gooding Jr. at the Beverly Center for Food Court. I was 16. Boys in the hood had just come out, and my best friend Tiffany dared me to ask if I could hug him. He said I was beautiful and seemed really happy to get that hug, but I brown blushed nervously, and he sat a few booths away with his friend and veggie slices from Sabaro and smiled a lot. I wore Tiff's Kenty Cloth bomber jacket and red lipstick. I had perfect skin and didn't drink carbonated beverages. Dave Chappelle also looked at my ass, and he also said, damn. We were in the frozen food section at Ralph's in North Hollywood, and I half smiled. I was wearing my favorite old Levi's with the hole in the left side belt loop and had just moved back to L.A. with my two-year-old. Chris Rock did the same thing, same jeans at the movie theater across from the Beverly Center, and he thought he wouldn't be recognized with that newsboy cap on, but I saw him. He looked twice. We didn't meet him, but we sure did see Morris Chestnut in the Beverly Center. He was way shorter and way finer than we thought, and he walked really fast after he got off the escalator, unzipping his jacket. I was too stunned to speak anyway. I mean, all of that chocolate and the goatee was so on point, so all me and Tiff could do was try to keep our squeals in until he had passed us. All the way, I had on a black velvet bodysuit and black jeans, my corkscrew curls, and an updo. Just another ditch day, 11th grade. The same year I found out who Audie Murphy was, I got stretch marks. I was 12 and living in a battered woman's shelter in Long Beach with my mother and sister and noticed the light striations on my first shower there. I was filling out too fast and eating too much junk food. I put on sandals and a loose, pale blue summer dress that tied at the shoulders and saw the woman in the bunk across the room organizing pictures in a raggedy green photo album. She lay there, propped up on a thin elbow, looking at Audie Murphy so hard her inch-thick glass fogged up and chattered to herself about his movies. I think it bothered her son, who was my age and very smart, but he didn't complain. He took really good care of her. She would kiss the pictures and say in a clear voice, I might be tall and you might be short, Audie Murphy, but you'd better tell those Western girls you're all mine. And I'm going to read one from the last I'll read the last page of the book. When I saw John Singleton buying a bean pie at Simply Wholesome, I knew I had done the right thing, cutting off all lovers and ex-lovers, all man candy and even decent prospects, and coming to L.A. for my 40th birthday to hang out with my best friends. And also, who doesn't love bean pie if they've had some bean pie? And my son came with me, his face all smiles, because spicy Jamaican patty and cream soda heaven, and even the live music at Simply is perfect. And even though I'd had two surgeries and my newly cut up gut prone to protest. I was alive in my hometown and seeing celebs just like old times when I was young. I could in equal measure celebrate and take everything about living for granted. But 40 is cool. 40 is so cool. 40 is seeing and knowing and not seeing and wanting. 40 holds beauty as the accumulation of bliss and survival. Forty widens its arms. Forty seeks all the June sun instead of shade and flies with more than usual mechanical luster and says yes to all the right things. Forty knows what it wants and mostly gets its every fineness. I just came back from 
Providence, Rhode Island, from Brown University, where I was invited to a fete to celebrate the retirement of the great poet Forrest Gander. And he had assembled an astonishing crew to say his farewells to that job and that place and to celebrate his work and his life. And among the poets there was Raoul Zurita, and I'm just reading to you from the Poetry Foundation's website when I say that Raul Zorita is one of Latin America's most celebrated and controversial poets. After Augusto Pinochet's 1973 U.S.-supported military coup that ousted Salvador Allende's democratically elected government, Zorita's poetry sought to register the violence and atrocities committed against the Chilean people and the corruption of the Spanish language. During the dictatorship that lasted from 1973 to 1990, Zarita published a trilogy of books, wrote poems in the sky above New York City, bulldozed poems in the Chilean desert, and helped to form the art collective Colectivo de Acción d'Art that used performance as an act of political resistance. I wanted to read you one of his poems. The poem is called The Desert of Atacama, and I'm reading you section 4, and I am obviously reading you this poem in translation, and I want to recognize the great translator Anna Dini Morales, who was also there in Providence. And it was remarkable to watch a poet who has found the perfect translator and to get to hear the poems in both languages so astounding, so alive. Um, Zurita, I have to say, gave the reading of a lifetime. We all just stood up and in kind of worship after he was done. And I don't expect to be able to do any justice to this poem, but I wanted to read it. I wanted to put it in the air. I wanted to um, have his words with us. The Desert of Atacama, 5. 1. The desert of Atacama soared over infinities of deserts to be there. Two, like the wind, feel it pass whistling through the leaves of the trees. Three, look at it, become transparent far away and just accompanied by the wind. Four. But be careful, because if ultimately the desert of Atacama were not where it should be, the whole world would begin to whistle through the leaves of the trees. And when we'd see ourselves in the same never-transparent whistles in the wind, swallowing the color of this pampa. When it was my turn to read, I thought I would read a selection of poems, a little bouquet I'd culled from my books over the years, mostly involving, well, endings. So, 
The first one is a poem I wrote when I was an undergraduate, and it's called Having the Skull in the House. And the poem was written because I actually went to the anthropology department at UC Berkeley and borrowed a skull. It turned out you could check them out like library books. And I checked it out and I put it on my refrigerator for the semester and um, lost a lot of weight. But I also ended up writing this poem. Having the skull in the house. One. The first thing I noticed, having the skull in the house, was the sense that my hands were dirty all the time. I found myself holding them off away from my face, not touching my food or my clothes. Or else I was standing again at the sink. To get it, I lied. So I made myself stand before it, as though it were a mirror, touching my lips and the bones at the edge of my eyes, where there is no answering gesture. Two. I try to imagine the skull in the other room. It is not the persistent bird-like sound of dripping water or the bird sounds of the birds themselves hidden somewhere up at the edges of this apartment building, somewhere up near the blue, inverted pool of sky, they sing. But the skull is down here. It is very dry. Maybe the skull is a clock, the rim so white, the face so dark. Why, I say to my lover, you're all decked out. In your false nose, in your best flesh, in your eyes so liquid, you're all dressed up. It's a joke. It's a joke. It's a joke. And this is a poem from my second book, which is called After I Was Dead. And the poem is called Mystery House. And it's based on the Winchester Mystery House in San Jose, California, um, which was made by the widow of the Winchester rifle tycoon. And um, she met a clairvoyant who told her that the only way to keep the ghosts of those who'd been killed by the gunshots from coming to get her would be to keep building her house. I think the clairvoyant must have been married to a construction worker. And so the house is about like five acres large, really seriously, this Victorian mansion that just sprawls all over the place in a really spooky, crazy way. Um, and I think that's all I need to tell you about the poem. Mystery House. My joke, my efflorescent extravaganza, please, another bathroom for the mad king of Bavaria. Nothing is coming to an end, alas, dream on. I crushed the orders in my hand. I had a fist. Now what to do with it? 
I dreamed you were making love to a chocolate cake beside a large window, curtains open. Oh, this hole is so tiny, you said. Please, another room for the ghosts of the victims of gunshots. They must be confused now they're dead by the vastnesses of the sad widow's mansion. These useless stairs going nowhere, doors opening on nothing, guilty corridors that dead end. Oh, my punchline, my cancerous structure. To divide is to conquer. I dreamt I was opening boxes of funeral chocolates from Vietnam. Sweets for the ancestors, for the dead who like that junk. Damaged in transit, the creams oozing, mashed against the lid. You like it, I mean, the window in the lid. I was trying to frame a letter to the go- those who'd gone before, who'd hired me, but how to put it. Please, another mirror-lined hallway, spare no expense. We must show this unexpectedly heavy deluge back to itself. We must be prepared for the eventualities. These stained glass doors never opened on the end of the family. The part that collapsed was abandoned, but construction only halted when the widow's heart stopped its fear-struck, guilt-struck, hammering. Tell me, how do you write to the dust. Oh, my very unfunny. At Flores por los Muertos, we let the orchid rot in its see-through coffin while we defoliated ourselves of our feelings, feet deep in torn-up notes. Please, another turn in these stairs, another brick wall or glass ceiling, false alarm set of bars across these bulletproof windows. They're clever, the dead. Hunger makes them clever, And they have nothing to do but watch and wait. No voice. This is from a book called Dark Archive. No voice. Wandered lonely in the voice of another who had no voice. This is what I remember. Two figures by the water's edge, stopped by such beauty, one numbers. The complaints travel the body, stop nowhere, never stop, are always. Later by an open window, notebook open. This is what I remember. Who had no voice, she said, still, but I wonder how you are. I wondered like, like, refusing the information. I wandered, realizing I hadn't mourned, and that I would still. And I'll end with a small poem from a book called Subject. Circles. Breath cleared, window, fluttered edges, fragile petal, dust your touch would tear through, caught in, oh, I see, through you, you, said, oh, the snow, oh, made for the gone, eye holes, oh, they were so stilled, still, style. Oh, they were such echoes. Spill, beautiful each in its box, labeled, singing in the 
we disappeared into, laced our stiff bodies to each sorry try-again window sill, swinging perch in each o, oh, singing their fool heads off. Thank you. Paper-thin stutter there, shrill, each seeming to sing how delightful. And I said I was ending there, but what I meant, I was ending the little uh, riff of my work and that I'm going to end for real with a poem by the poet we were celebrating in Brown, and that's Forrest Gander, born in California. And again, I'm reading from the Poetry Foundation's website. Born in California's Mojave Desert, poet Forrest Gander grew up in Virginia and attended the College of William and Mary, where he majored in geology. Gander's books of poetry include Eye Against Eye, Torn Awake, and Science and Steeple Flower. Critic Barbara Fisher wrote in the Boston Review that Gander's poetry, quote, marshals a sinewy and strenuous language for familial, sensory, and erotic experience. Primarily a poet, Gander is also a translator, novelist, essayist, and the editor of two anthologies. He has translated collections by Mexican poets Pura, Lopez, Colome, and Coral Braco. With Kent Johnson, he translated the Bolivian poet Jamie Sainz's Imminent Visitor Selected Poems and The Night, for which he won a Penn Translation Award. His translations of Neruda are included in The Essential Neruda. He also edited the bilingual anthology Mouth to Mouth Poems by 12 Contemporary Mexican Women Poets. And then there's a list of prizes, which I'll... I'll skip. What I want to recommend is that you go out as soon as you can and buy his most recent book, which is called Be With. And this is the book that follows the tragic, untimely death of his wonderful wife. And he has been brave and strong in writing about his grief in a way that is exemplary and deeply moving. And so I'm going to read to end one of the poems from that book, Be With, which has just come out from Ferris Strauss and Giroux, and the poem is called Beckoned. Beckoned. At which point my grief sounds ricocheted outside of language, something like a drifting swarm of bees. At which point in the tetric silence that followed, I was swarmed by those bees and lost consciousness. At which point there was no way out for me either. At which point I carried on in a semi-coma, dreaming I was awake, avoiding friends and puking, plucking stingers from my face and arms. At which point her voice was pinned to a backdrop of vaporous color. At which point the crane's bustles flared. At which point, coming to, I knew I'd pay the whole flagpole fare. At which point, the driver turned and said, It doesn't need to be your fault for it to break you. At which point, without any lurching commencement, he began to play a vulture bone flute. At which point, I grew old and it was like ripping open the beehive with my hands again. At which point, I conceived a realm more real than life. 
at which point there was at least some possibility, some possibility in which I didn't believe of being with her once more. That was professor and poet Laura Mullen. And that's our show. You've been listening to Figure of Speech, a community poetry and writing program from WRBH. You can hear us every Saturday at 1 p.m. and every Monday at 9 p.m. for more great New Orleans writing. Thank you for listening.